Hello, and welcome to Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast, featuring thought-provoking conversations with prospect development and fundraising experts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Have you ever felt like a fraud? That despite all evidence to the contrary, you are not qualified for what it is that you are doing, and that it is only a matter of time before you're found out? If so, you are in the right place. Hello, and thank you for joining this podcast on imposter syndrome in the workplace. My name is John Goff, and I am happy to spend these next few minutes with you discussing the surprisingly prevalent and sometimes sensitive condition. There is a wide body of scholarly work and lay writing surrounding this topic, defining its symptoms, suggesting causes, and prescribing courses of treatment. My aim here is not to present myself as a particular expert on the topic, but rather to speak from the perspective of a professional in the field of fundraising who has experienced this phenomenon themselves and who has also observed it in others with whom they have worked. Imposter syndrome was first described by Drs. Pauline R. Clance and Suzanne A. Imes in their 1978 article entitled The Imposter Phenomenon in High Achieving Woman. Dynamics and Therapeutic Intervention, and in that article was defined as, quote, an internal experience of intellectual phoniness, despite outstanding academic and professional accomplishments. Those who experience the imposter phenomenon persist in believing that they are really not bright and have fooled anyone who thinks otherwise. Numerous achievements, which one might expect to provide ample objective evidence of superior intellectual functioning, do not appear to affect the imposter belief. Close quote. Though Clance and Imes initially believed that this was a condition that primarily affected women, it was later discovered that it also impacted men. In a 1993 article, Clance and Langford observed, quote, Studies of college students, college professors, and successful professionals have all failed to reveal any sex differences in imposter feelings, suggesting that males in these populations are just as likely as females to have low expectations of success and to make attributions to non-ability-related factors, close quote. That being said, a 2019 systemic review of imposter syndrome research by Bravada et al., found that 16 of 33 studies evaluated, so just under 50%, had found that women do indeed experience statistically significantly higher rates of imposter feelings, with other studies suggesting differences between the way men and women cope with the syndrome. Not only is the syndrome common across the sexes, but studies have suggested that as many as 7 out of 10 individuals have experienced imposter feelings and thought patterns. It is important to note that this number is somewhat contested, however, as again Bravada et al. suggests that there may be publication bias associated with prevalence statistics, wherein journals are more likely to publish studies with positive findings. Whatever the true percentage of sufferers may be, my personal experience as a practitioner and team leader would suggest that this is a fairly common phenomenon in the workplace. So a little bit about my own interest and and how I got involved in studying imposter syndrome. My attention was first drawn to the syndrome in my first semester as a graduate student in a very rigorous language program. 
Despite having graduated on scholarship from my undergraduate institution with a high GPA, and as a member of four honor societies with a full-ride scholarship to the graduate program, I cannot help but feel that my admission was an accident and that I did not belong. It didn't help that I was surrounded by professors and academics who were at the top of their field. These were successful authors who were members of national academies and associated with important political and other academic figures. As I participated in hours-long seminars with these outstanding professors and with peers who had been handpicked from across the globe, I simply did not feel like I measured up. I'm not proud to say that my young 20-something-year-old self let these doubts get the better of me, but they did. Small failures in my pronunciation while speaking in class in a foreign language, or in answering a grammar question for one of my undergraduate students, or particularly pointed feedback on a paper, all compounded to the point that I found it difficult to function as a student. This even when I received praise for a job well done, or received a coveted spot in a program overseas, I attributed these successes to luck or as an accident. I began to dread class, was anxious to the point of nausea, and began to see my performance decline. Now, fortunately for myself, I I was able to keep it together enough to complete my master's degree and most of my PhD coursework, but decided late in the program that it just was not for me. It was not just my feelings of inadequacy, however, that led to the decision to leave. Several other confounding variables were at play, including the Great Recession and its impact on language programs and job prospects at the time, but it did factor into the final decision. After leaving, and in the difficult year following my withdrawal from the program, I was presented with the opportunity to do a bit of soul-searching and to arrive at several lessons learned from the previous few years of experience. One of the biggest lessons was not to give place to doubts founded in weak or trivial examples of ineptitude, but rather to focus on the big picture and the overall positive trend of my ability. The next year found me once again in a graduate program, this time a master's program in library and information science. I came into the program with the lessons from the previous degree and was able to accomplish things that I had never thought myself capable of before. I did a complete 180, and instead of performing close reads of Rambeau and Sartre, I was writing set functions in Python and architecting databases in MySQL. My programming course final was, in fact, to write a program to identify trinucleotide errors in DNA sequences. This was so completely different from any of my previous experience, but also so very empowering. So upon graduation, then, my first job out of graduate school was for the Office of the Vice Chancellor for Institutional Advancement at UIUC. It was there that I quickly discovered that I had perhaps not as fully cast off the shadow of imposter syndrome as I might have thought. Sitting in my first executive leadership meeting with vice and assistant vice presidents quickly brought back those feelings from my earlier graduate school days, and it was then that I began to make a more deliberate study of the syndrome in myself and how it influenced behavior in the workplace around me. I began to ask myself questions such as, what is normal experience given a new set of circumstances versus what was perhaps abnormal and irrationally founded? So with those questions as a launching point, let's turn our attention to the phenomena itself. What are the symptoms of imposter syndrome? 
Though imposter syndrome is not yet an official condition accepted in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, also known as the DSM, it is a widely accepted form of self-doubt and is recognized by the American Psychological Association. Despite this recognition, it does not have an officially recognized list of symptoms. There are, however, some traits in common that come together to form a picture of what a sufferer might be expected to experience. A 2008 Harvard Business Review article by Jill Corkendale, an executive coach and former editor of the Financial Times, describes symptomatic thoughts and feelings as follow. 1. The belief that I must not fail. This belief sees the individual placing a large amount of pressure on themselves not to fail in order to avoid being outed as incapable. Likewise, success becomes problematic in that it brings increased visibility and responsibility and creates a situation where the individual is unable to enjoy said successes. 2. The feeling of being a fraud. This feeling leads the individual to believe that they do not deserve success or professional recognition and that others have somehow made a mistake in believing otherwise. They often think that they don't deserve a position or a promotion and are anxious that somebody made a mistake. 3. The belief that everything comes down to luck. Individuals with the syndrome attribute success to luck or other external factors rather than to their own abilities. They often use this to mask the fear that they will not succeed again next time. 4. Finally, the belief that success is no big deal. Individuals with the syndrome tend to downplay success and discount it. They have a hard time accepting compliments and attribute their success to it being an easy task that anyone could have mastered. In 2014, Nicholas Means, then an engineering team lead at WellMatch, and now a director of engineering at GitHub and co-host of the podcast Managing Up, gave a presentation at RailsConf in Chicago entitled You Are Not an Imposter, wherein he addresses the imposter syndrome in tech. In his presentation, he gives an example of how these symptoms perhaps surface in the workplace as a cycle that goes something like this. First, a new opportunity presents itself. Initially, the individual is excited. But before too long, dread, worry, fear, and panic set in. These negative emotions lead to procrastination followed by a period of intense overwork which leads to a success. At first, the individual experiences a sense of initial relief. However, after a short time, they begin to focus on tiny failures in their performance or delivery despite the success. This hyperattention to flaws leads to a denial of their success and the cycle primes itself for repetition. Does this sound at all familiar? Having worked in higher education fundraising for several years now, both as a practitioner and team leader in the field, I've noticed the prevalence of the syndrome in our profession as I've had one-on-ones with team members and as they have confided in me in those one-on-ones. One of the beauties of the fundraising industry, in my opinion, is the diversity of backgrounds found within the field. I often joke that none of us responded with, I want to be a fundraiser, when presented with the common childhood question of, what do you want to be when you grow up? However, because there is no single codified entry point or mechanism or pathway for joining the profession, there is, in my opinion, a higher probability for professional self-doubt. Even some individuals with very strong technical training 
related to their job function, I've seen struggle with imposter feelings. I have noticed an additional confounding layer for those engaged in the advancement services or operations side of the office. Due to the pace at which technological advances have been and continue to be realized, it is impossible to know everything about every advanced solution, CRM, or new technology. Given that, and the fact that we are in a period where many institutions in the field are divesting themselves of technological debt and are moving towards new, more robust solutions, it is little wonder that many are finding themselves slipping into feelings of self-doubt. The problem is even more amplified for those working in analytics as indicated by a simple Google search for imposter syndrome in analytics, which returned over 800,000 results. The preponderance of programming languages, methodologies, and other tools is such that it is impossible to be an expert in all of them. It just is. An interesting aside and related to this point, uh, and one that illustrates it rather well, I think, is the observation by Stephen Hawking all the way back in his 2001 book, The Universe in a Nutshell, that human knowledge is growing at an exponential rate. He states that if the trend continues, there would be 10 papers a second published in his kind of theoretical physics and no time to read them. So, perhaps you've noticed some of these feelings in yourself recently. What can you do to manage them in a healthy way? Returning to our 2019 study by Bravada et al., they observed the following, quote, None of the included articles presented an evaluation of a specific treatment, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, for managing imposter symptoms. A 1985 paper by Matthews and Clance quantitatively, qualitatively rather, described their experiences in private practice caring for 41 people with imposter feelings. They recommended validating patients' doubts and fears, directly addressing fears of failure, and providing group therapy since these patients often feel isolated and that they alone experience imposter feelings. However, no data were presented on treatment intensity, duration, or improvements on any diagnostic tool. Close quote. Even though there may not yet be a series of clinically codified measures for treating the syndrome, Corkendale offers some valuable insight as to what steps one could take when confronted with imposter feelings. Paraphrase, these steps are as follow. First, Recognize your feelings as they emerge. The first step towards mental healing in many situations is mindfulness, which is an awareness of your thoughts and feelings and their triggers. Second, rewrite the narrative. Instead of telling yourself that you are going to be found out, rather, remind yourself that it is okay not to know everything and that you will continue to grow as you advance in your career. Third, talk about your feelings. Many therapists recommend finding a mentor to help you navigate your feelings. It often helps to find others who have shared similar experiences to discuss ways in which they have confronted and overcome their feelings. Fourth, consider the context. Everyone will encounter scenarios where they feel out of their depth. Reminding oneself that circumstantial self-doubt is often a normal reaction can help you remember that momentary feelings of inadequacy do not imply that you are inadequate yourself. Fifth, reframe failure as a learning opportunity. Instead of dwelling on a failure, rather view it as a learning and growth opportunity. Sixth, be kind to yourself. No explanation necessary. Seventh, 
Seek support. Allow yourself to seek outside help and recognize that it is okay not to do everything alone. Eighth, visualize your success. Keeping the end goal in mind can often help maintain your focus and your ability to cope with momentary feelings of frustration or inadequacy. Let's return now for a moment to the role of the team leader or supervisor. How can we address this issue with our employees that may be experiencing some of the feelings associated with this syndrome? It is well understood imposter syndrome and its effects can impact job performance. Returning to Bravada al., they observe the following, quote, There is robust literature that describes the harmful association between imposter feelings and job performance, job satisfaction, and burnout among various employee populations. In light of this evidence, we encourage employers to incorporate recognition of this phenomenon in the development of both structured, so training, orientation, onboarding, and unstructured, such as mentoring, coaching, self-directed learning, learning, and career development activities. Success-oriented employees have a thirst for training and personal growth. Offering resources such as access to therapy and resilience trainings that focus on imposter syndrome could help reduce the prevalence of imposterism in employed populations. In addition to structured and unstructured learning, employees can target imposter syndrome by creating healthier expectations and a culture where mistakes are not interpreted as failures and publicly acknowledge and celebrate employee accomplishments. Close quote. Recognition of employee accomplishments does not always need to take the form of some grand gesture. Simple signs of appreciation, such as a quick email after successfully completing a project, can be, in my experience, highly effective, though these must be sincere. Finding ways to acknowledge success in team meetings or other venues can also help undermine or dissuade feelings of imposterism. Before ending our podcast, I want to quickly touch on some of the odd ways I have noticed the syndrome affect individuals in management roles. I have observed in others and fought the temptation in myself at times to avoid delegating work, the fear being that if I do not do it myself, I will not know how it is done and will therefore be less capable. I have also observed reticence in team members to onboard or even share knowledge with new employees at times due to a fear that the new employee may prove more capable than themselves. It is important to recognize these symptoms in ourselves and in our teams and to find ways to counteract them because they will ultimately work against us if left unchecked. One useful method I have found for counteracting these specific types of feelings has been to deliberately carve out time for professional development for myself and to provide the same to the teams I manage. A team that is continually learning new skills and successfully using those skills in the workplace is less likely to believe imposter feelings given the proven and recognized track record of their own success. Additionally, to Corkendale's last point about visualizing our success, setting clear goals and expectations for team members can really help in defining measurable parameters for success. Understanding what success looks like for the team will then help dispel feelings of uncertainty that can lead to imposterism. Once those goals are set, however, they should not be moved too frequently so that teams have time to focus on them and actually achieve them. All right. Well, I hope to have brought some clarity to the syndrome 
and to have successfully highlighted the fact that it can influence anyone at any stage in their career. It's important to remember to practice mindfulness, to address irrational feelings as they arise, and to reach out to others as necessary to overcome imposter feelings. With that, I wish you good mental health and continued success in your careers. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast. To discover all that APRA has to offer, visit aprahome.org. For links to content featured in this episode, check out the show notes. If you like the show and want to help others find us, please subscribe to and rate us on iTunes. Until next time.